I'm David Clayton, and this is the Way of Beauty podcast, conversations on Catholic faith and culture. Deacon Lawrence, it's great to have you here. Uh, welcome you. to uh, the Way of Beauty podcast. And uh, I, I would like, first of all, for you just to uh, tell me a little bit about uh, your life as a Catholic. Uh, I only met you in the last, uh, finally, I'd heard about you before, but maybe three or four years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so what drew you to Catholicism and are you a convert or you brought up in the church and you're a little sort of talk tell us about yourself and your journey in faith up to this point sure. well I'm actually a cradle Catholic I was raised in the faith however I grew up in the, the 60s and the 70s so in the aftermath of Vatican II uh, I feel the the uh, the catechism, the passing on of the faith, the teaching of the faith was was very uh, confused in the 60s and 70s following Vatican II. Um, and so I think like a lot of my generation, I have, after uh, in my, my late teens and young adult, I fell away from the church. Uh, when, when I think back on the, the teachings of the church then, the, the way the church, the way the faith was passed on, it was characterized in a lot of uh, uh, soft language you know they use the word should a lot you really shouldn't do this you really should do that well you know when you tell a kid he should or shouldn't do something he hears that as an option so i think a lot of this generation that grew up in the 60s and 70s fell away from their faith as teens and young adults and i was certainly one of those uh, it, it's interesting i was actually i i never really considered myself anything other than a catholic but i had no one really to to helped me explore the richness and depths of the faith. And I was listening to actually a dramatization of um, Pilgrim's Progress, a radio dramatization of Pilgrim's Progress. And there's a point in this story where the, the character Christian sees a cross, and this is a, it's just a bare cross, there's no corpus on it. But what I saw in my imagination was, uh, was the figure of Jesus on the cross, and the look on his face was one of such sorrow and such love that, that was sort of a turning point to me. So I, I went, I started going back to church and learning more about the faith. And when I went back to the church, all of a sudden I, I see this, this deacon up there. And I didn't know what a deacon was at the time. Uh, and uh, that was something that was very uh, attractive to me. It was something that, that I really felt called to do. And so I met with the deacon there and I started uh, exploring what the diaconate is and what it does. And so I'm coming back into the church and learning more about the faith. At the same time, I'm also learning about the diaconate. I, um, I approached the diaconate office and uh, at a time where they were just beginning a new class, but by that time they had done all of their vetting processes. And so I wasn't able to get into that class, but the director of the office kind of gave me some, uh, some assignments to do, some lay uh, formation programs to, uh, to participate in because it was four years before the next class so I spent four more years doing these lay ministry programs learning more about my faith and when the next class came around I was I was accepted into that class and so four years after that through that formation I was ordained deacon in June of 2008 so oh oh it's the dog I could hear I could hear your dog (laughs) Uh, all right I'm sorry about that Uh, (laughs) 
So, so yeah, so I'm learning about my faith at the same time I'm learning about the diaconate. And I was ordained a deacon in 2008. And through this process, I I had always been an artist. I've been an artist for as long as I can remember. Uh, And through this process, I began to try to reconcile my calling as an artist with the Catholic faith. And this was back, uh, so about the time formation actually started was around 2004 or so. And there wasn't a lot uh, being written reconciling the Catholic faith with the arts. Now there's quite a bit more and, and uh, Pontifex and Way of Beauty have contributed a great deal to that. So it was a, a, a time when I was discerning a lot of things equally and trying to figure out how they all fit together. Right. Okay. And so um, I'm just trying to think when I first uh, became aware of you, I was blogging, I think, the, the Way of Beauty blog. And um, I think I remember your, you, uh, I got an email, a notification email saying that it, when people sign up for the mailing list or something like that. The thing that struck me was the, the your um, website name, Griffin Rampant, is it? Something yeah. like that. And immediately I wanted to look and I saw that you were an artist and that you were writing. Um, <clears throat> and then I noticed that you would occasionally comment and then I think we even might have corresponded a little bit. So gradually we became aware of each other. And then when I started to work for Pontifex, uh, that coincided with my move to California. And you live in Sacramento, I'm in Berkeley, so we, we met up. And at that point, you decided to, you were one of the, the opening uh, class of, of the Master of Sacred Arts. Yes. So uh, I, I would love to know, um, d- just describe it as a student, someone who's been through it. You're, you're uh, one of the first two graduates of the program. Um, what people can get from this and um, then also just the impact it's had on you personally uh, in any way you like. Sure. Well, as I, um, as I began to discern how uh, Catholic teachings and and how this plays into the the role of the arts, you know, I said that there wasn't a lot being written about the role of the arts and faith, but there was plenty being written on the secular side about the role and purpose of the arts. And unfortunately those two don't go together. So, uh, Pontifex, the Master of Sacred Arts program at Pontifex, gave me a much broader and deeper knowledge of the role the arts have played in the history of Christianity. And then from a lot of different angles. Uh, I'm, I'm a visual artist, so architecture and music are not my forte, but those classes in architecture and music still helped me to, to see the harmony and structure that underlies all of creation and how this comes out in our art and in our architecture and our music. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Bible study classes showed me the not only the, the richness of the Bible, but how these things throughout Scripture are all connected. And one of the, the wonderful things about art is that it can um, show these connections in the Bible in a way that, that other things cannot. So, for example, there's a connection between the, uh, the visit of the Magi, uh, of the Christ child, the baptism of Christ, and the wedding at Cana. Now, most people won't see a connection with those, but they're all uh, manifestations of God to the world. And in the arts, you can show, you can create a visual image that connects all three of those things. So all of the um, courses of Pontifex contributed to this much broader understanding of the role of the arts that played in the faith. And it helped me discern my particular calling as an artist. So I, I concentrate primarily on sacred art. 
And even within sacred art, I, I do some icons, I do, uh, but I mostly do more illustrative projects. So it's yes. kind of falls into a category of liturgical illustration, the type of artwork that you would see in sacramentaries and missals and missalettes and hymn books and prayer books and things like that. Yes. Um, but <clears throat> Pontifex, I think the biggest benefit was, was this uh, breadth and depth of, of knowledge and exposure that it gave me. And it really helped to see these different uh, periods of Christian art because what, my, what I do with my art is I try, actually try to synthesize a lot of different traditions. So you can see in my work a little bit of iconography, a little bit of Gothic, a little, even a little bit of Baroque. And because I spent so much time in the secular art world, there are some secular influences as well. Uh, but it was, um, it, it was a great program to help form me not only as an artist, but as a deacon as well. We, we want to talk about, uh, you know, from the standpoint of mission, uh, the diaconate is, is in an interesting position. It's, uh, we're, we're ordained clergy like priests, but unlike priests, we're very much rooted in the secular world. Most deacons have jobs uh, for which help them to support their families. They're usually not paid by the diocese that, they're, that they uh, have been ordained in. So they work outside jobs. They're very much rooted in, in the secular world. So deacons kind of serve as a bridge between the secular world and the sacred world. <clears throat> so as a deacon, the uh, Master of Sacred Arts program has given me those tools to help reach out to artists and encourage them to use their gifts and talents in the way that God intended for them to be used. Because the secular world, uh, the, the purpose of art from a secular point of view is very personal. It's very internal. It's very much about uh, um, self-discovery, uh, you know, working out your inner demons. But that's actually a, a relatively new uh, uh, viewpoint of art. Far and away, for most of human history, art has been used to serve a community. So the Master of Sacred Arts program gives me that, that overview, that, that rich history of how the arts have been used throughout 2000 years in the faith. That's, that's very interesting. I was, I loved your description of the, the, your point that art connects. I never um, thought of it quite like that, but you're absolutely right. This is the, the value of art. It's not simply the statement of what it contains, but by its nature, I'm, I'm really just responding to what you, you said there, but by its nature, it is an image that the art we're talking about. It represents something. And so therefore, it's, by its very nature, it transports us through the imagination from image to prototype. Beauty speaks of the source of all beauty. So the very sort of qualities that it have speak of the source of those qualities. So ultimately, anything that's good uh, takes us to God. And so it really does... Um, transport us it, it's if we're going to have faith in god we we need to do that at some level because most of us can't see him <laughs> we said you know we can't touch him. It, it, it's he's not there in the material world in the way that we normally perceive things and so uh, we need to connect what we can perceive with what we can't and that is the role of art and as you say it also can connect different times by just doing a snapshot with three different periods, three different events in the same 
image and so therefore you instantly think well why is that there why is that there why is that there um, so one of the uh, the things that um, I'm excited about it I'm always sort of learning and developing and is this understanding that all things are related so I first came across this through the human person uh, person is not just an individual they're by nature we're connected to each other but all of being is in relation in some way it, it is it is affected by everything else nothing is is unaffected by the existence of everything else my existence here in some way affects the furthest star in the universe yeah. through my presence science supports this um, but philosophy reinforces this particularly with um, people involved in the creative retrieval of Thomism like uh, Norris Clark that uh, came through with me and suddenly I thought this is what art is teaching without ever reading a philosophy book this is what it's telling us all things are connected it's it's embedded in it with the principle of beauty with the subject matter it, it uh, chooses the, the, the you can place things together with the context in which you place it the other art in which you put it and then also the fact that by its nature it is an image that relates to a, a prototype so yeah, that's father, uh, god sorry carry on yeah uh, you know father andrew Greeley wrote a book uh, called the catholic imagination and in his opening pages he talks about how catholics live in in this wonderful world of miracles and saints and angels and we have we very much should have an awareness that we live in two worlds simultaneously. We live in, in the world of the spirit and the world of the flesh. And art has the ability to, to show that spiritual side of things and, and make it uh, uh, present in the physical world. Yes. Art people, people talk about icons as a window to heaven, mm -hmm. but I, which I, I'm not going to quarrel with that, but I actually, I don't think that communicates really what we're, for the fullness of it it really is a, it's a it's a sort of beam me up platform you know it, it connects us yes. in relation with what is there through the imagination in a profound way um, yeah, so. I think that uh, uh, and I think that our understanding of icons has been changing over the last couple of years thanks to uh, the work of people such as Aiden Hart uh, one of your instructors who has come out and said, it's almost, almost heresy for iconographers, that maybe we didn't quite get it right when we reinvigorated this, this tradition. And there's a lot of, uh, you, you know, uh, windows to heaven. Uh, there are a lot of lines that are just kind of repeated by iconographers that, and that may not really understand what it is they're saying. So as we learn more about how icons were painted, we are having to adjust what we've you know, always known about icons. And as you've said in your writings, and I've said in some of my talks, almost everything we know about icons is less than 100 years old. Yeah. Now, could you enlarge on that? I'm fascinated about what, what Aidan's been saying. I interviewed him three or four weeks ago. And, um, but could you tell me what, a little bit more, if, if there is anything, well, about what he's saying and what others are saying about icons? Oh. So when I was uh, when when I was first started out trying to to find this spiritual side of artistic gifts and how they are to be used, one of the most obvious things to look at was iconography, and so I tried to find an iconography instructor. I went up to a to a workshop. You know, these five day workshops are very popular, yeah. and they're interesting, but they're really more for hobbyists than anything else. But it was enough to to really kind of whet my appetite. So I started looking for an iconographer to learn from. 
and I had a very difficult time finding one. I, I uh, talked to one Russian monk who felt that unless you were a Russian monk, you had no business doing icons. <laughs> so there was a lot of prejudice. There was a lot of uh, very narrow uh, thinking when it came to iconography. I finally found a, uh, a Russian iconographer who actually only doesn't live all that far from me, maybe half an hour, 40 minutes, who um, uh, he, he's, he's a lay person. But he was, when he lived in Russia, he was considered a Russian national treasure. When he immigrated to the States, he was pretty much considered the equivalent over here. He had done work that was gifted to presidents and to, to in both Russia and here. So I, I learned a lot from him, and he had a very secular, practical approach to iconography. What, but, what was his uh, name again? Uh, Pavel, Pavel Tikhomorov is his name. Oh, okay. And very, very talented, just amazing, especially with his use of color. I, I would watch him match a color in just a few seconds that it was just amazing how closely he could come to match a color. He, did a, he does a lot of icon restoration as well. Okay, we should do a feature on him then, uh, one yeah, of us, for the way of beauty. Yeah, he was, he was, I, I, I haven't heard of him, so I'd love to see that. If you okay. can't see it, or I'll investigate. Anyway, we'll yeah, talk about so, how we, yeah. So as I learned more about how iconography was being uh, taught about, uh, 10, 15 years ago, mm. uh, there, it, it, it gets very emotional for people. A lot of people get very invested in iconography and, and it, it, it's almost part of their identity. And so you run into a lot of what is and isn't an icon. An icon has to be painted in a particular way using a particular method and it has to be a copy of, of an existing icon. And, and a lot of that never really made sense to me because that would make iconography a dead art. Yes. If you uh, if you say that you know Rublev was the epitome and nothing after Rublev really counts as an icon, well then you, you can't have icons of any saints that were canonized after Rublev. Yeah. Uh, Aiden Hart has begun to uh, recognize that well, what we always assume to be true about icons is not necessarily true. You've related some of your own um, experiences where you would discover this method of of uh, painting an icon in grayscale first and then yes. laying over it in color. And I, the way most iconographers are taught, that would just would not happen, that it never happens. They didn't do it that way. And well, and then they found that actually they did do it that way yes. in a lot of cases. So, yeah. uh, I, I, and I think it's very brave of Aiden because there is so much uh, prejudice out there in terms of what is and isn't an icon. Uh, there's a popular artist, Robert Lentz, who I understand has actually gotten death threats from some Orthodox because of the way he, he portrays icons. Uh, but they, some of them take very extreme positions, such as if you depict Mary without the Christ child, that's heresy. Yeah, I'm just, I'm just going to cover that. In fairness to our Orthodox friends, the, those who are making death threats in no way represent the, the Orthodox. I, no. I want to make that, that clear. I mean, there, there is something really wrong with those those people yeah, no, absolutely and, and not of my orthodox friends who, who yeah, would no, disagree no. with that okay no, I, I i i agree and, and there are very talented iconographers that do wonderful orthodox work that are not priests they're not monks they're lay people yes it's very much a vocation for them but um I don't think it's very widely known that this revival in the art of iconography is actually fairly recent. Mm, and it was kind of backward engineered from existing examples and we're beginning to, with more and more discoveries, we're seeing that, um, that, that what we thought about icons is not necessarily true. 
when I took my first workshop class, they went all into uh, sacred geometry and, and uh, 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 framing figures within these certain geometric forms. And yeah. then when I found this, this teacher, Pavel, he, he basically kind of threw that out, said, you don't, you don't need that. And he's, he's right in regards that if you have the talent to do that, you're just going to see that naturally. You're going to see uh, that composition from your natural artistic ability. And it does fit within those geometric forms, but it's not like you have to sit there and map out the circles and triangles and squares and, and fit the form within that. That's just something you're going to do naturally. And, and also, I, I always think that most of those construct, the moment those constructions get complex and ornate, frankly, I don't believe them. I think they're things that are fit, right. fitted after the fact. Because you're an artist, I'm an artist. You know that for figurative art, you can't work within things in that way. I mean, you can have broad parameters and you're always sort of jiggling. And also, as soon as you put one thing, to come back to this point about relation, if I have one thing in an image, the moment I introduce something else into an image, it, it, it changes our, our perspective, our perception of that, um, because it immediately becomes that in relation to that. Right. And so artists are, are always sort of adjusting and maneuvering, and you can only do that within a broad skeleton, I would, a broadly right. stated skeleton, I would say. Do, do you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. And we talked in, in the classes with the, the Master of Sacred Arts program, we, we talk about the, uh, the golden uh, rectangle, the golden section. And we, we bring this discussion out in those classes where they'll impose this shape on something like the uh, Parthenon in Greece. Yeah. And they see it fits in there and it, well, it doesn't exactly fit. But, you know, <laughs> you're kind of afraid to question the teacher. Okay, well, if the teacher says that it must be true, but we shouldn't be afraid to point out that, yeah, it, it doesn't quite fit exactly the way you say it fits. Yeah. And so there is a lot of, um, there's a lot of misinformation. There's a lot of, of prejudice. There's a lot of kind of very narrow thinking. Um, and I don't mean to, uh, to, to dissuade iconographers, but I, I think iconography is a much broader area than most practicing iconographers realize. Uh, a lot of people are trained either in Byzantine or Russian iconography, but there's a dozen other uh, national traditions of iconography that are just as valid. Yes. Um, it's interesting. I, I, uh, I've known Aiden, those who heard my interview, maybe 30 years, something like that, a uh, long time. And uh, what always struck me, I mean, first of all, he's a, he's a wonderful, wonderful teacher. Um, just a pleasure to be in his classes. He's always explaining the principles. Um, I remember he telephoned me once, this thing with the um, uh, overlaying color over a monochrome base. Right. which I'd got out of a Cennino Cennini book, a, a, an Italian Florentine artist from the, the early Renaissance period, was describing the methods of egg tempera. When I first met him all those years ago, he said, oh, no, no, no. Then we started with, I was going to a class 20 years later, something like that, um, and he telephoned me and said, look, I'm going to tell you something. And he explained, I've seen these x-rays. I now realize that I was wrong. This is, we're going to use this method. Um, very open 
and intellectually honest. Uh, and that, that's what's wonderful about him. A lot of iconographers, yeah. unfortunately, are not. And I think a part part of that is uh, is financial. You know, there are various uh, schools of iconography that teach. They have kind of teacher the te teach the teacher workshops where they will teach people in their particular method, and then those teachers will go out and teach workshops in that method. And it, yeah, it's 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 beginning to turn out though with people like Aiden where. Uh, it is beginning, people are beginning to see that, that there is more than what that original group of iconographers, uh, you know, for the benefit of, of those listening that don't realize what we're talking about, in the mid 20th century, a, a small group, I think five or six uh, uh, artists, revived that tradition of iconography. Because the two biggest centers of, of iconography of sacred painting were Greece and Russia, and between the various uh, regimes, the Turks in Greece and the communists in Russia, iconography was all but wiped out. And so it took this group of artists in the middle of the 20th century to, to revive it, and I think it started on a bet. Uh, one, of the, one of the artists bet the other one that he couldn't paint an icon now in the 20th century that would look like something they painted in the 13th century. And, oh, I didn't know that, okay. Yeah, and <laughs> so from that, they started looking at icons and kind of back engineering with what they were what these artists were trying to do and what they were trying to achieve and we've really kind of made icons into uh, uh, Some people put it on the level of a, of a sacrament, which it's not uh, sacramental perhaps, but certainly yes. not a sacrament I agree. I agree with that. Um, But yeah, so most of what we uh, are commonly taught about icons is actually fairly recent and I, I should also explain that we're presenting this not as a criticism of the work these people did. This, this is actually down to the fact that they did this so well that people, many people aren't even aware that it's a re-establishment a re of the tradition because they, what you have is icon painters who are working within the bounds of the tradition. It's developing, and as you're describing, even the understanding of those principles is deepening and developing. Now that is an authentic tradition and they are my inspiration for what I hope might happen in the Baroque and the Gothic and um, you spoke of um, synthesizing and so immediately I can hear the purists sort of worrying about this. Uh, first, first of all you're very clear to say that you're not doing a liturgical, uh, that, that you, the work you're describing where you do most of this synthesis is uh, illustrative art, so there's always a little more freedom there, but that doesn't preclude something then making that step into the liturgical environment. Synthesis is the Christian way of working. We look at all that is good and bring it in. The, but the point here is that it has to be done well. Um, it's, it's not an end in itself. It is in order to serve the church and uh, man and in, in order that he might move closer to God. It's, it's opening up that connection, not misleading or distorting or, or producing a, a block. Um, and so synthesis, I think, is legitimate. I, I, I'm glad you're doing that. This is what we need, because we need expressions today that are going to speak to people. This might end up being a modification of an existing tradition or emerge as the Gothic emerged from the Romanesque, and, and, and at some point, people will say, well, actually, that's a new thing. Yeah, um, yeah. if I were commissioned to do a church, then I would, I would start 
very much in one of those traditions, you know, after speaking with the, the pastor and, and perhaps even the bishop and whoever is in charge of, of commissioning me, we would start with one of these traditions from the church and we wouldn't depart from it too much because liturgical art has, has very certain requirements. Uh, but at the same time, what we're talking about, you, you, uh, you recently wrote an article about uh, the French artist Beaujolais which made me cringe a little bit because I'm a fan of Beaujolais. I like him very much. <laughs> oh dear, I'm sorry. Yeah. Well, no, but, as, but you're correct in what you said. He, he, his artwork is not appropriate for the liturgy for a number of reasons. But I could see where you could, where you could take Beaujolais' style and with a few adjustments, it would absolutely be appropriate in, in a more Baroque setting if, you, if it would involve desaturating some areas of it, focusing on, on the main uh, element of the composition, uh, using color and form and uh, how crispy paints the edges, but it, it's not so much a critique of, of uh, Beaujolais' painting as it is you were pointing out the difference between uh, Baroque art and Beaujolais, uh, but I could see how that academic painting of the 19th century with some adjustments could fit in a Baroque setting. Oh, yes. I, I um, Well, I mean, I think the... 19th century realism, which is what's called. I don't like that word realism because I think something that's real is a move towards reality. <laughs> it doesn't, it, it's, but they, they call it that because it's, uh, it, it conforms to superficial appearances, which for the people who named it is reality, which is, so that, that I'll use that phrase because that's what people understand by it. Mm. But um, 19th century realism is really derived from the academic method, which, from which the, is so tied up with the Baroque that it's inevitable it's going to be similar. And so an academic training today, if you went to an atelier, you're going to learn that method of 19th, the stylistic elements of the 19th century for the most part. Um, that, that is the movement that caused this, there is a slight resurgence of these places. Um, but that doesn't mean that with all you learn, you can't then look at Baroque art and adapt. After all, that's what John Singer Sargent did. So he, he was in the 19th century um, and his teacher um, was in, uh, inspired in a way, Corolos Duran his name was, but uh, the way that he um, adopted Baroque sensibilities and then incorporated you know, influences from the Impressionists, from 19th century realism, just a brilliant, brilliant artist, John Singer Sargent, but he went to the Prado and uh, painted every Velazquez. Hmm. The Prado is the art gallery in Madrid, uh, the, the Spanish National Art Gallery. Painted every Velazquez in the gallery so that he could make that style his own or it could inform his personal style very strongly. And so it can be done. And, and I would love to see people doing that. And the result was not that Sargent painted like a, a 17th century Baroque artist. You could easily see the difference between Baroque and Velasquez, but he drew from it what is good. He, got a, he was able to occupy that world and then move it forward, push the envelope further without breaking it. And that's what we need in our artists today, I think. Yeah, oh yeah, and I think, I think artists that work in sacred art as a group, we're trying to find that art that's going to carry us into the next millennium. And that's difficult to do because one of the factors that's going to determine that is whether or not it stands the test of time. 
And yeah. of course, we're not going to be around to, to know whether or not that happens or not. But we can learn from the past and we can learn from, you know, as different as uh, iconographic and Gothic are from Baroque, they still have some elements in common that define sacred art. It has to do with stylization and composition and color and focus and things like that. And those things can be carried over into almost any of these different styles of art. You know, we're, we're fond of saying that all great art movements started at the altar. Yeah. Well, look at um, what type of, of art you're drawn to, what your particular style is, and, and trace it back to where it started at the altar. So, but I think there is an effort to try to find that type of liturgical art that's going to carry us into, through this, this uh, third millennium of Christianity. And, and uh, unfortunately, we will probably never really know. I believe that's our, our grandchildren. I, I think you're right. I'm optimistic. Um, when I started, uh, you, you were sort of searching in 2004. I was probably, start, I converted in 94. And... About 2001, I started to really reach out. I came to the U.S. looking to, because the U.S., of course, is where all the streets are paved with gold and everything happens. <laughs> if you're British, that's the, and, we're, and half the population is intensely envious of it. But anyway, well, that's another thing. But um, the the I am optimistic. I th I see huge progress. I see people really thinking deeply. Um, and what is going to emerge, it may be you, it may be me, but it's probably somebody in the next generation, I think, will be the artists who synthesize all of this well. And the moment that happens, it's what you call in science a catastrophic event. It doesn't mean it's disastrous. It means that um, it's, you can't control the occurrence of it, but once it occurs, it triggers off yeah. other things. And we just have to get everything ready to receive that person, an atmosphere of tradition, so that when that person arrives, we we copy him in, a, in an understanding way. If nobody's interested in tradition, even if you have that genius, inspired by God, working brilliantly, everybody's trying to be different from him if, if, if yeah. you're working the modern method. So we get the environment right and then move forward. Sorry, you're trying to come in, yeah. No, no that's right. No, that's, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, I see us as, as bricks. You know, We're building this brick by brick, and you and I are bricks. <laughs> but that idea that everybody has to be different, that's a modern secular view of art, where the artist has to, to it, the artist's personality is almost more important than the art he produces. And, and this is a very modern view. This, this idea of art for art's sake is also only about 100, 150 years old. Uh, the art, by and large, has always served the community throughout most of human history. And it's not so much that the artist becomes anonymous. That's one of the, the tenets of iconography is they keep some of the artist needs to be invisible. Well, but when people, you know, uh, scholars who study iconography, even if the artist is trying to be invisible, they can usually tell when an icon was painted, where it was painted. And in some cases, they can even tell you who painted it, even if it was painted hundreds of years ago. So it's almost impossible to eliminate an artist specific uh, personality and style from anything he does, even when he tries to do it. But this idea that the artist has to to be individual and different from everybody else is a fairly modern idea. And that's one of the things that in my writing and in my work, I try to get across to, to people. I, part of my ministry as a deacon is to get artists and creative people to use their gifts to build up the kingdom, to bring people back to God. And to do that, the first thing you have to realize is that it's not about you. It's about what you can do for others, what you can do for the community. Yes, and of course, that's the, 
the paradox, isn't it, that by serving the common good, we are most fully ourselves. The, 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 right. the true person comes out. It, it's just happened. Um, who God meant for you to be. Yeah. What, I'm just going to tell a little story, actually, that relates to the other graduates, jo Joachim Arnold. Um, I hope I'm not going to put pressure on him by mentioning his name. Actually, oh, not at all. <laughs> anyway, we'll see. But um, he, as we were going through this, uh, you were talking about how there's connections between the traditions. And we, we, I was sitting in on these scripture classes that Father Sebastian Carnazzo was teaching. And the idea was we would confer before, and he did the scripture, and I was learning um, so much from his classes. I, I mean, I, it, it's another one of those areas where I just didn't know what I didn't know. You know, it's Donald Rumsfeld's unknown unknowns. You know, that, that was really, that was scripture for me. I have to say, I've been a Catholic for a long time. I was not someone who rejected the value of scripture. I just didn't know quite how important it is until I sat in on those classes. And he is great because as a Melkite, um, he's, uh, he's aware of the connections between the, uh, the scripture and the sacraments and the liturgy and the art. And so he would uh, tend to illustrate his uh, courses with icons and then we would confer and I would come in and bring in Baroque and Gothic art. And then he would actually uh, instantly notice uh, conformity to the tradition in terms of content and say, uh, you see that, you know, and the common um, sort of Bible paintings that you get that the people think of very often were a departure from this, that actually the, the, the Western Catholic traditions, which we follow in the course, the suggestion of Benedict XVI, who says Gothic, Baroque and, uh, and iconographic, and that, that does make sense to me, actually. Um, that they are rooted in the tradition and that and even with a, something which in a way is a radical departure from the other two the baroque they're still in being informed and learning from tradition well one of the things that came out as we were doing this the, the, the question then comes in well which paintings do you choose for your church and what goes where so it's all very well saying that this painting is great because all of that um, is you have to understand if, if it's going to support the liturgy because there's an activity going on which really we want to encourage people to engage with the art in the course of worship it's supposed to enhance it so it isn't something that you look at beforehand and then you, you're sort of to, to coin a phrase nose buried in a missile it, it's the idea is that it's uh, there's no harm in reading a missile in church by the way but what i'm saying is that we need that engagement with the architecture with the art, all of which is, should be designed to uh, direct us to what is actually going on in the worship, to reveal more to us. And of course, in the East, largely again, as a, as a result of the work, not, not exclusively, there are diagrams, but in the East, uh, as a result of the work of these people you're talking about, there, there are well-known schemas for art in the iconostasis, where you have what, why, why it's there, it relates to certain... Um, moments uh in the liturgy itself where things are incensed you know it's all of this is interconnected there is no such schema that i can find for the roman rite um we could start there we, and, and in the course we speculate and say well if, if we go to do this um these are the principles that we would we might actually employ 
Uh, but there, I don't know of a book which really has a comprehensive diagram set out in which we can do this. And I was saying, uh, well, uh, what we need really is somebody to, to take up, you know, to throw down the gauntlet or pick it up, whatever the metaphor is, and actually do some research. So look at ancient Roman churches, which probably means mosaics, because otherwise everything else has been moved around, um, and not just after Vatican II. I mean, things have been moved for centuries. So um, mosaics, they can't move. So have a look at those, what records we have, and then it's going to be a creative retrieval. It's, it really is going to be, just as the iconographers did in the mid-20th century, say, okay, here's our suggestion for a starting point for a schema. And I said, if anyone wants to do a doctorate after this, um, then please, uh, this would be a great doctoral thesis uh, and something that could give untold benefit to the church. Um, Joachim, uh, and I, I, he's just signed up for the doctorate program at Pontifex University. We'll see where his interest lies, actually. Um, but uh, at the time, he said, I want to do that. I'm, I'm inspired to do that. Um, um, so if you're listening, uh, you, could, you could join the classes. You could do your master's and your doctorate through us. But I think a greater mission, even than doing courses at Pontifex University, is actually in this context, is we need that schema that, that people simply don't understand how important, vital art is to our worship and to our faith and how it should be part of it. And we can learn from the Byzantine tradition in putting that together. There's a, let me just look here real quick, Kovarnos, uh, a man named Kovarnos wrote uh, two or three books on Byzantine art, and he talks about beyond just the iconostasis, the type of art that's in different places in the church. And this is, I think, what you're talking about. Yep. Yeah, I was just gonna say, could you just, on the chat, spell his name out? And uh, then uh, I will sort of make sure people right, because I wanna know, I didn't know about this, and I, before you talk about it, I think it's important that people can... Uh, let's see, it's Constantine. There we go. I didn't realize it was so complicated. Okay. Okay. All right, got it. Constantine Carvanos. So he's Greek, I'm, I'm guessing then. Yes. Okay. But okay. so he talks about exactly what you're talking about from the Byzantine tradition. Beyond the iconostasis, what type of art goes in different parts of the church? So, for example, where the choir is, up on the wall, behind the choir, or in the ceiling above the choir, what is most appropriate to represent there? What is the art in the apse behind the altar? What is the art that is um, over the doors when you go out? What is the last thing you see on your way out? All of these things are important, and all of these things inform our liturgy, and they should be taken into account when we're designing the art for our churches. Yes. Fortunately, as, as you alluded to, churches often get remodeled, and so what used to be the baptistry, and you had a nice painting perhaps of, of Jesus being baptized, is no longer the baptistry, but that art stays there and the baptistry is somewhere else in the church, so there's a disconnect. Yeah. We have to take these things into account, but I think that's what you're referring to, is that we need this schema that tells us what type of art should be in different parts of the church to really inform us as to what's happening in the liturgy. 
Yes, and the um, it's funny. I just had a um, a little to and fro with people. I, I wrote an article in a in a blog I write for the, the New Liturgical Movement, um, really emphasising this and uh, saying that uh, I think more could be done in the Roman Rite, even the traditional Latin Mass, which of course is doing a lot to preserve what is so good about the the Roman Rite. I'm a fan of the Latin Mass. Um, but I don't think they've worked out yet, uh, and, uh, and uh, people, they, they weren't sure they agreed with me, to put it mildly. But I don't think they've worked out yet how art really combines with that. And I think there's, that until we do that, this thing isn't really going um, to flourish. Go on, carry on, yeah, carry on. Well, we, we, we do have to break down barriers. You know, we have, to, we have to recover a medieval tradition when it comes to building our churches. You know, when they built cathedrals, those great medieval cathedrals, it wasn't just the architect or, or the mason. It was all of these different uh, uh, trades and crafts and arts working together to create a whole. And we've, we've kind of lost some of that because when we build a church these days, well, the planner does his part, the architect does his part, the, the builder does his part. And of course they talk to each other, but there's, I don't think there's really a lot of thought into planning the whole. It's just still kind of piecemeal. And there's some, I was on an architecture uh, chat one time and they referred to the paintings in a church as wallpaper. Now, they didn't mean it derogatorily, but of course that's how artists are going to look at it. And it's just, but it, it betrays a thinking that is kind of an afterthought. It's what they're gonna go in and decorate the church with after I finish building it. But it really does need to be a synthesized whole. Yes. Uh, through uh, Pontifex, the, the Masters of Sacred Arts program contributed very much to my um, work as a liturgist. I work with the liturgies both on a parish level and a diocesan level. And you begin to see how all of this connects to our liturgy and, and art and architecture and the statues and the music that we put in our churches should all work together. And I think Pope Benedict, this was one of his uh, crusades, was to try to get us to do that. The ordinary form and the extraordinary form of mass, unfortunately, they, they don't really talk to each other the way they should. And they, they really should inform each other. And the, those scholars that call for this seem to be voices crying out of the wilderness. But this is something that Pope Benedict XVI promoted, that the ordinary form should learn from the extraordinary form and vice versa. And I can see in, in both forms of mass how they can learn from each other. The ordinary form can can acquire much more, uh, well, uh, for lack of a better word, reverence, uh, but a, a much more mystical understanding of the liturgy and the miracle and the sacrifice of mass, bringing in some of these things from the extraordinary form. And the extraordinary form can learn to be a little more accessible to the average Catholic that has absolutely no knowledge at all whatsoever of Latin or what's going on in an extraordinary form mass. So uh, at Pope Benedict, I think one of those two forms to learn from each other, and we haven't made much progress in that area. Yes, it's funny. I, what, one of the sort of closing remarks I, I made, um, it was a lively discussion, actually, with regard to the, the Latin Mass. Uh, I said, I, I don't think it's going to flourish until it's, it is this problem of inaccessibility to ordinary people. And I always get pushback, say, well, you can read missals, people can be cast, but <clears throat> it's... People aren't, you've got to get people to want to even go that far. Right. And, and I said that, and, and some of them were reacting because it's, it, they can't see how the art in the way that I describe relates to what they do. And the answer is, well, it doesn't at the moment. Something's got to give here. Um, 
there need to be soft spots. There needs to be an understanding of where the, the liturgical practice can be modified without breaking the rubrics or the, the traditions of the way that it's, it's done. I don't want to do that. Um, so that we engage with the art. And art will do precisely what you're describing. It, 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 if you have other means of ascertaining what's going on, other than simply the word, well, actually, it's the actions, because the words can't be heard half the time. So it, it really, we need something more. And I said the best chance the Latin Mass has of um, continuing in existence form is at least to modify itself to adopt this. Because then um, art speaks of things beyond words, as, as you described so well um, right at the beginning of this uh, discussion, um, it really does communicate powerfully. It's not a support, it's, the words are the most important, and the most, you know, they, they can say things most precisely, but they can't do it alone. They really can't do it alone. And I don't think this is understood. Um, probably they would acknowledge music, um, and, and I would agree with all of that. The music is hugely, hugely important as well. Um, and we need to see, I would say, in music, um, the development of a living tradition of chant. <laughs> There's been great, great work in working out, shall we say, a foundational tradition of chant. But it's, but it's not developing as a living tradition at this point. And again, the musicologist might, uh, who would know much more about music than you might argue, but I, I think we need new composition in the spirit of what chant really is in order to do that as well. Absolutely. Music gets a lot of attention because it's probably one of the easiest things for us to change, and it has one of the most uh, profound effects on, on the mass. But, you know, I think one of the uh, best examples of the effect that art has on the liturgy is that altarpiece, the uh, Mystical Supper of the Lamb, the artist, uh, of course, uh, right at the moment escapes me. Uh, but we usually see this out of context. We see it as a great example of medieval art, but in context, it was behind the altar. So when the priest raises the host with that, that work behind him, it informs people what's going on, this Supper of the Lamb, the sacrifice of Mass. Yeah, I, I think you're talking about the Van Eyck altarpiece. Yes. The, 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 yeah, so... Of course, the mystical supper of the Lamb refers to the central panel. But right. the, there is a schema. I, I think that, for example, to come back to the idea of the schema, there's something very carefully worked out there. Absolutely. And again, when we showed that to Father Sebastian, who didn't know it well because he knows the Eastern, uh, he instantly looked at it and said, oh, they've done this. But even the way that the, the panels open and close, it, it's got these panels, he said that the, the themes on the reverse side of the doors when they're shut is similar to what you see on the doors in the iconostasis, the, the royal doors. And then they open, and then you see the altar and the lamb, just as you do in the iconostasis. He said this, this, this seem, there seems to be a direct parallel here to yeah. what's going on. Yeah, it's very carefully worked out, and I, I, I think we really need to, to focus on working these things out. We have to avoid, you know, one of... <laughs> One of my favorite movies is The Agony and the Ecstasy, which is about the painting of the Sistine Chapel. And it starts out with the Pope commissioning Michelangelo to, to do the 12 apostles and appropriate decorations. And we have to guard against just doing the 12 apostles and appropriate decorations. We really need to think about what we're doing, the art that's going into the church, where it's going, and the message it's conveying, and what's happening around it during the mass 
to really inform the people of the beauty and mystery uh, and, and miracle that's happening every time we celebrate Mass. I, yes, I, I couldn't agree more. Well, we've been talking for 50 minutes or so. It might be a nice time to wrap up. It's been tremendous. And I think we go on. We've got to do this again, uh, Father Deacon Lawrence. Um, before you go, uh, first of all, I want to encourage people. Um, Deacon Lawrence, he's too modest to say himself, but he is a great speaker. And if you want someone to come and talk about these things, he is uh, really well worth a visit to your parish and happy to do it. And so um, why don't you tell us, uh, first of all, where people can see your work and your websites and all your contacts. Uh, sure, I'll, I'll put it in the chat here as well. My uh, website is deaconlawrence.org. Right. Uh, you can also go .com. I, I, I have that as well. They both go to the same place. And my email is lawrence at deaconlawrence.com, actually. Uh, the website, I write a weekly uh, article that usually touches on the readings of the week. Is that right? That's right. Uh, and I try to relate it to, to the creative people out there, to the artists and the creatives and the makers and the craftsmen because there, there is just so much in the secular world that is not uh, complementary to, to the faith vision of, of an artist. And so uh, I, I write a weekly article on, uh, usually based on the readings, and I try to relate that to the arts, tell a lot of stories, I make a lot of references to pop culture, uh, trying to, to get those people on the edges of faith, the, the spiritual but not religious crowd, as well as the artists and creatives to, to understand the depth and mystery that's here in the faith that we want to invite them to help contribute to. So you can go to my website and see my artwork there as well. And uh, uh, I uh, just recently started gathering names. I, I have a subscription list that I send longer versions of the article where I go into a little more depth of what I'm talking about. I also post those articles on thewayofbeauty.org. Yes. You can uh, find my writings there as well. Well, that's terrific. Um, so deaconlawrence.org. I'll, I'll put this in the show notes as well. And lawrence at deaconlawrence.com. Is that right? It's not .org, it's .com. I, I have both domains, .com and .org. The email goes to .com. The uh, website, both uh, .com and .org, they both go to the same website at .org. Good. Good. All right, well, that's, that's terrific. So we'll say goodbye to Father Deacon Lawrence. Thank you very, very much for spending this in most enjoyable hour with me today. Yes, thank you, David. I enjoyed it very much as well. We'll have to do it again. Uh, yes, certainly. You've been listening to the Way of Beauty podcast, conversations on Catholic faith and culture. If you enjoyed this episode, then please give us a five-star review on iTunes. This will help others to find it too. Also, if you're interested in delving more deeply into the material that we discuss, you can do a course at the Pontifex University website. That's pontifex.university.